Blog Talk Radio. Quiet,
seed breakdown and blocking, uh, lens selection, a camera movement and placement, you know, motivated camera movement placement, telling the story from a particular uh, uh, character's aspect, uh, special effects. Um, and, and last time we promised you we were going to talk about making a movie with like little to no money and, and making it look like a bigger movie on the screen. So we get a lot to talk about, but the good news is that Jack is going to come back uh, more times, and we're going to continue this discussion. So we invite you to join in now, if this is your first time, and, and continue with us on this exploration. I'm so happy to be bringing Jack on, and I'm so happy uh, that you're listening to us today. So uh, stay tuned. We're going to go for a ride here with Mr. Jack Press. How are you doing today, Jack? I'm good. I'm good. I'm a little daunted though. That is that it's we're promising a ride. I hope it's uh <laughs> but it's uh I, I hope it's probably not, be a hayride. <laughs> yeah, it'll be a hayride. Yeah, it'll be a slow hayride. No, no, it'll be uh you know, for anybody, hopefully it'll be it'll be uh interesting. Um but yeah, no, we were talking about you know, I guess I guess one of the things you brought up that probably a lot of people think about is like how do I make my movie look bigger than the money, you know, that I right. have. And I think most of us are in that sort of situation. I know I have been probably my entire career. I mean, the irony, I've never been able to work this out, but um, I, the first two movies I made, one was this movie, um, America's Deadliest Home Video, which was this movie uh-huh. with Danny Bonaducci that I made in Wisconsin, which was made for like $7,000. And the next feature I made, this movie, The Big Empty, was made, again, this was made with no stars, um, in L.A. for like $150,000. That was a 35-millimeter movie. Um, both of those movies, you know, probably had my lowest budgets, and um, and both of them also ended up having the longest shooting days, the longest shooting schedule than anything I've had prior on movies that have had millions of dollars. Um, I've never been able to understand it. I think I, what I realize is that, um, is that, you know, when you're shooting on a, on a show where you're paying a lot of people, when you when you have an official production, uh, a studio production where you have everybody's on the clock and everybody's, you know, and most people are working for unions and um, there's just a lot more expenses and ultimately the day, and you know this, right, Rex? I mean, the shoot day, each shoot day carries a, a figure of what it's going to cost. I mean, basically everybody you're paying, all your equipment rentals, all these things, for whatever reason, I think that as the budgets went up, the shoot days became less, um, the number of days to shoot the movie became less because the daily expenses were, were greater. I guess what I'm getting at is when you're making a movie um, with your friends, or if you're doing it like Eraserhead style, like David Lynch did, where he shot it piecemeal you know, over, over many years, I don't recommend that, but the fact that he just, whenever he, could get the resources and his friends were available, he just went and shot. I think shoot days is really one of the the, the, the great advantages to the young filmmaker, time. Because you're not going to have all the, no matter how much you study, you're never going to have the, uh, you know, the perfect answer, the perfect solution for every one of the filmic challenges that are presented. Um, but you do have the time to kind of get it right. And I think that's one of the things that I don't ha- feel like I have anymore. I don't have any time anymore. So, um, I mean, maybe someday somebody will give me a you know big, a big budget and with a lot of, a lot of shoot days. But but uh-huh. I've had to learn how you know. I, and I basically what I did was, I had to learn how to do the kind of finessed work that would make me happy with my own work, um, 
because I, uh, because I never had enough time. In other words, I, I realized that if I just didn't figure it out, um, I was just going to be miserable with my work. So I guess what I'm saying is that the first thing you have on your side, even if you have no money, is the amount of time it takes to get it right and to try to shoot scenes different ways um, and to experiment. And I think that can make all the difference. I mean, the other thing I think is is just the getting away from kind of random shooting. I think there's a, I guess, and this is what we were talking about earlier about point of view or finding some sort of philosophy as to how to shoot a scene that if you just shoot a scene from a lot of different angles and cut it together real quick, you'd be surprised. That's how a lot of people <laughs> that's how a lot of people think a movie should be shot. A lot of directors get a I, I would think a misguided education in how to make a scene work. They figure, well, we'll just cover this from a million different angles. I think you know, I think probably the Born I the Born series, although I I, I enjoy those movies, um, mm. taught people um, one way of shooting something which is not necessarily the, the perfect solution, which is to go handheld, to shoot shoot everything from from either multiple cameras or just do a lot of setups and then cut it all together very quickly. And suddenly it's your movie is very exciting and dynamic and, and visually stimulating. And that can work for certain things, but it doesn't work for everything. Uh, and if anything, I can, I, sometimes I think it can neuter a scene. Uh, so, so deciding... Deciding specifically what shot supports what specific shot supports what specific moment. It's almost like when a composer is writing uh, a song. You know, it is note by note. I probably mentioned this before, but that's what you're doing when you're setting down your shots, either on a short shot list or storyboard. You're composing the visual sort of music. That's where your shots are. So to think about what is this note? It's not just let's just you know it's not just a bunch of random notes slapped together played really quickly. It's what is what is this note? Or the way you know think about think of yourself as like a really even though it sounds pretentious think of yourself as like a poet who only is writing a few lines, but god damn each one of those words has to be should mean something and is in the it, it's a choice you know the the word that that a that a poet uses. And it's amazing how a a great poem or even a three minute song can like change your life emotionally, can like, you know, reduce you to rubble just because of the specificity of those creative choices as opposed to like you could watch a three hour Transformers movie and not be moved at all, you know, like at, at, at all maybe. You know, so it's not volume. It's not how long or how fast. It's it's the specificity. So I don't know. Does that make sense? I mean, I sort of have an example of of that um, when I was doing one of my first professional jobs. Um, when I first did the pilot episode of Xena Warrior Princess, and I was in New Zealand, this was like the first time you really saw this, this Xena character. You know, who you know, self-defined warrior princess, right? She, she's leader of this army. You, there's this moment where in the script where it just says Xena walks out in front of her troops and gets climbs aboard her horse and says, let's go, and charges at this village that she's going to attack. And it's a perfect example of, like, as a director getting a script, that's basically what the writing was. It was like, 
Xena Warrior Princess walks out in front of her troops, gets on her horse, and says, let's go, and charges, right? And then, then I had a whole other thing to deal with, which we'll get into in a minute, which is like the next couple of lines were basically about, <laughs> were about as general as you can get. It was like Xena and her and her her bandits fight, you know, kill everybody in the village. Yeah, that's basically what the descri- <laughs> that's what the description was. It wasn't like it wasn't broken down into a lot of moments. So uh, that's even a bigger task, which is how do I okay, what does that mean? How many how many different ways can I depict this and what are those shots? But let's just take the first shot. She gets on her horse. So, you know, I knew that most television is 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 sold in is kind of communicated. I mean, the shots in most in most television shows are close-ups. I mean, most most TV shows are a lot of close-ups. Um, this was sort of started in the 50s when they realized. Well, somebody said, "Well, look, TVs are really small," and they were. I mean, TVs in the beginning were like ridiculously small. So the idea was, well, we can't shoot these like movies which are predominantly wide shots, that has changed. But if you go back and look at movies you know, prior to the 50s, there's not a lot of close-ups. And it's amazing how compelling they are and how intimate they are, even though you see people head-to-toe a lot of the time. Somebody said, no one's going to be able to see. It's going to, be look, it's going to look too small on TV. So shoot everything tighter so you can at least read what's on their faces. And that was essentially the beginning of what became the, the predominant visual language of television, which is just... You know, just a lot of big heads cut together. Uh-huh. Um, so I realized that what you could do is, even though this was necessary, that at a certain point, if you strategically open it up, if you strategically use a wide shot in the right place, even if you don't use an, many of them, it could just be one, it could it could create this incredible dynamic, this idea of like this great epic sort of quality. So what I did was I chose this moment where Zena gets on her horse to be the place where I strategically designed a shot that would show a big, enormous vista. And what I did was I incorporated a camera move, which was a crane shot, a crane move. So what I did was I followed Xena as she walked out. The camera was essentially at, at uh, eye level. And the camera, camera essentially panned with Xena. It was, so it, was it, was, it was a medium shot of her, you know, basically at the waist walking across this, you know, what looked like five or six horses. And as she climbed onto her horse, the camera started to crane up and go higher and higher and higher. And as it craned up, you could see this army of hers fanned out, kind of like in a spear formation behind her. So as the camera craned up, you got more and more in this kind of, you, you began to see this, the, the, the scope of her, of her army of bandits or brigands or whatever you want to call it. And so, and just at the moment where the camera reached its maximum height and you saw every single horse and every single bandit, that's when she screamed, you know, let's go. And at the moment she kind of threw, you know, basically at the moment she said that, we cut into an even tight, to a tight shot of her and we were off into this big sequence. But up to that point, you know, it was fairly, me- it was medium shots, close-ups, it was fairly routine. But then, if you know, it was that moment of, you know, dun, 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 this is where you see the power of Xena, really, you know, the, 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 the leadership or the, what she, you know, her sway or whatever. But I remember hearing much later that Rob Tappert, who produced the show, um, when he saw the dailies for that, he turned to somebody and said, 
You know, this guy Jack's a feature director. He's not a TV director, which, um, I, I, you know, it sounded like it. It didn't necessarily sound like a compliment, but I took it as a compliment um, uh-huh. because he recognized that there was this feeling in me to try to wring out as much emotion as I could from each moment, even if I didn't have the the time. So I didn't have time. You're never going to have time to do crane shots all day long. Um, you may not even have a crane, you know, because it's too expensive. And then some guy who kills people, we had like two crane days. You know, they could afford it. They could afford to rent a crane for two days, even though I had, you know, ideally six out of 18 days. I, I knew I could really use it and it would help the movie. But they were like, no, you know, we don't have the money, so pick. Pick two days where you can have it. And so I literally had to get down there and say, okay, now which... I think one was a half day, too. So I said, now, which shots in this whole movie, out of all these shots, which moment can really benefit from the use of a crane? And I really had to decide if I had to pick, because I didn't have have all the the tea in China. If I had to pick, I said, okay, this moment, this moment, and this moment. These are the moments in the movie where if I open it up, and, and go 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 for scope that it will it will benefit the picture and it will make the picture feel bigger and it will also uh, support those scenes that much more um, and that's what I what I had to do but I, I think that it's it's selectivity training yourself to be um, selective because you're never going to have all the toys you know when you want it so that's just one example of 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 that kind of very, um, I think, precise kind of thinking that is required when you're directing, unless you luck out and hit Super Lotto and you know have zillions of dollars and just play you know for the rest of your life. Um, <laughs> right. So, uh, another long answer, Rex. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, well, no. It's, I, I love the long answers. No, don't ever, don't ever uh, stop. You know, talking and uh, and because the, they're chock full of information. And, and I, I'd like to go back and kind of tease out some points, and, and maybe we can further sure. discuss those. I then also want to elaborate on something you said, um, using another example. But the first is is you mentioned. Um, I mean, one, the difference between TV and, and feature film, the idea that you can make a, a movie, any movie, look bigger um, is, is an incredible. I guess I'll elaborate first. Is, 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 um, is useful to know. Uh, now, uh, tie back. Um, you talked about having days. You know, Obviously, the days got shorter depending on budgets, and the more days you have, uh, maybe the better off you are. Uh, the caveat to that is that you are well aware of. But you know, as as a producer or director, you could have a thousand days, and your your movie isn't going to be any better, unless you plan it well, and 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 do the kind of strategic thinking that you're thinking like, you know, when you make your movie. And I think what's happened with because I was on a feature not too long ago where we had quite a lot of days actually, um, but. Uh, you know, and it was also for me because uh, you know I line produced as well, and I had to deal with the accountants. My days were between eighteen and twenty hours long almost oh, every man. day. Long so, and, and sometimes longer because I'd be on the set, and then I have to go to the office, and then I have to work with the accountants, and then I have to, you know. So, everything about those days, good or bad, on that feature or any feature, has to do with how much pre-planning people do. And yeah. one of the things that that you know we talked about. Where we we alluded to is is the storyboarding and and how you create the look and the and the feel and and the placement of the cameras prior to to uh, you know even getting to shoot and then uh, you know you've got 
to deal with a, a producer, a line producer, like you just said, they, you've got two days or a day and a half to use a crane when you go, you know, it would be great if I had six days. So maybe what we can do is talk about some of these other points, too, in that, um, you know, you looked at Zena and said, you know, if I place this camera you know, this crane here and, and do this series of things, it gives it a, you know, a greater feel and it focuses on the character when she's doing this. Um, but that's all your job. And then your right. job is also to work with this producer who goes, uh, you know, we don't have the money for that. You know, you're going to have to decide. And then and what you said, I had to go through and really decide where I wanted to use this, you know, to maximize it. So, you know, we can't emphasize enough the, the planning aspect of things because – Tons of crap is going to happen on the set that you can't account for, um, but you know the meticulous nature of and you being the cinephile that you are, right. you know the meticulous nature of of going through and, and making these things happen are, are all they're tiered at you know at different levels and and but they're all like interwoven and they're layered together um, to create this tapestry you know which ends up on the screen. Oh yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, I think that the, you know, if you like, we talked about this before. If you look at something like Hearts of Darkness, you know, which is the making of Apocalypse uh, Now, and you know, Coppola's got seemingly all the days, you know, in the world, you know, hundreds of days. Um, right. And and even though the producer, you know, Fred Bruce, people talk about how like there was planning. It's clear uh, at a certain point that there wasn't a whole lot of planning, and that you know, I think. Um, you know, people. Some of the actors just said. I think it was Frederick Forrest or whatever said. You know, you just show up. You know, and they would just. It would say scenes unknown on the call sheet. You know, things like which is the opposite of planning. Um, and no, right. I, I mean that to me is a night. Is feels like a nightmare. Uh, you know, I think that what you should do is, is. I think that what I guess what I was saying is, is that yes, absolutely. I mean. And, and it shouldn't be, it sh- again, it shouldn't be homework to plan. I mean, planning carries with it this sort of like homeworky sort of connotation. Like I have oh, shit, I got I to plan. But storyboarding and figuring out your shot list it, in the comfort of your home without a producer, you know, go tapping you on the shoulder without, you know, without looking at a clock, you know, and saying, oh, my God, the sun's going down, I'm never going to get... But the, but the peace and quiet of being able at, at home before it all goes crazy, you know, everything goes crazy, and just thinking about, you know, what does this movie look like and what are these, what's the best way I can communicate what this feels like, and writing it down and scribbling it down, um, even in the most crude drawing, is like, is like one of the happiest moments, is one of the happiest times for me. I mean, I, think, I don't think, I think I'm, I'm happier then, because that's the moment of inspiration. You know, it's funny um, when you get that shot without the pressure of some of somebody saying, "You got to get this right now." When you get that idea, there's nothing more gratifying than, say, maybe months down the road, down the road, when you kind of cut those shots, having already been photographed together, and you get that sort of magic moment. There is sort of a magic when you see two shots simply go together, and it's and it and it creates another effect. But like I was watching, I just had a birthday this week. I, you know, I'm an old man now. I Again, turned, happy birthday! Thank you. So I turned 45, and I'm still celebrating my birthday the same way I did when I was nine, which was I just watched a lot of movies. You know, that's the greatest joy. You know, and so I think in, in on my on my birthday I watched three movies. I watched my wife. I woke up for whatever reason. I woke up at six in the morning. I watched The Invisible Man. Uh, again, you know, a James Whale. Uh-huh. 
movie from I think it's thirty five. Claude, Claude Rains. Yeah, it's just great. I mean, uh-huh. we should talk more about that later. But Leave His Man is just great, and it's funny because James Whale. I realized, you know, when I was looking at this, is 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 very much um, inspiration without even a, a kind of a. Um, an inspiration, but without even knowing it. Uh, I wasn't really thinking of James Whale when I made Some Guy Who Kills People, but, you know, his movies are the perfect combination of sort of crazy comedy and horror. Uh, I mean, Bride of Frankenstein, Frankenstein for that, all his movies, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, um, certainly The Invisible Man, um, they have these incredibly, you know, um, terrifying, you know, shock moments, horrible, you know, grotesque moments. And then there's also this screwy, comedy that's uh, wild comedy that's through his stuff and um so anyway i watched that i watched topsy turvy again which is mike lee's uh, the, the the british filmmaker brilliant british filmmakers uh account of gilbert and sullivan creating their opera uh the mikado and uh you know that's a movie that all creative people should see topsy turvy i mean even if you don't know who Gilbert and Sullivan is and you don't care about their music it's a, this unbelievably detailed and totally entertaining um, uh, account of the creative process. And it's even though it's staged, you see you, they actually have scenes where you see Gilbert blocking, literally blocking, uh, you know, with blocks, you know, where the actors are going to go on stage in the rehearsal process. There are scenes about rehearsing that are so spot on, and what it is to work with actors, and what it is to just basically get that moment. This is what I was getting at. To, to to find that moment of inspiration, there's a great, great, great. Have you seen the film, Rex? I don't know if you've seen the movie, but um, in in Topsy Turvy, Jim Broadbent plays. I don't. Uh, oh, you got to see it. It's he. I he don't plays, know. I honestly don't know. Oh yeah, Topsy in in in, in Topsy Turvy, Jim Broadbent plays Gilbert, oh. who was basically okay. who wrote the librettos for. You know, basically wrote the stories for. Um, Gilbert and Sullivan. He was the story part. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there's a moment where Gilbert is trying to come up with an idea for their next play. And he's stumped. He's blocked, like a lot of us are, like writer's block. And he ends up going to a Japanese kind of exposition, almost like a World's Fair exposition. His wife drags him to it, and he doesn't really want to go. And he buys a... He watches all these interesting... Um, Japanese customs, tea services, and samurai demonstrations. And he buys a samurai sword. Anyway, there's a great scene where he's still still at home now. He's home later, and he's trying to figure out what he's going to write about because he feels like he's he's writing about the same stuff, and it's getting boring. And he the samurai sword that he bought, that's been now nailed to the wall as a kind of a decoration, falls down off the wall and clatters to the ground. He's all alone. It's the middle of the night. Can't sleep. He picks up the sword, and there's this shot. You know, we should talk about this. There's this shot where he gets the idea for what will be their greatest opera, which is the Mikado, um, which is a, um, a, a comedy opera about Japanese, you know, set in feudal Japan. So it's the Jap- going to this Japanese exposition when he's blocked, buying the samurai sword, and the fact that it just kind of drops on the ground in the middle of the night something clicks in his mind in this quiet moment where he just gets the idea. And I've never seen a better depiction of that moment, that joy uh, where somebody realizes they've hooked into something that's going to be great. 
you know, but it's and it's a very simple shot. It's interesting when you look at the movie. Wow. Um, it's this very simple single shot where it's a slow dolly into a close-up of Jim Broadbent's face. And the way Broadbent plays it, you see his face go from, like, blank to incrementally. You see, like, behind his eyes, you see this, like, brilliant idea forming until finally he has this, like, a a six-year-old smile on his face. Like, I got it. And it's it's so beautiful. And um, so, I mean, long way around to saying that this process of sitting alone and drawing and and, um, scribbling and and not not tensely, you know, not like I gotta do. It's not like I gotta prepare this because I'm gonna get a grade on this, or it's due tomorrow, but because because it's your pleasure, you know, to think about shots that you've seen in other movies that have, that have inspired you, or moments that have inspired you. And what can I do here? How can I riff on this? How can I how can I make this better? How can I make this my own? Without all the pressure is like one of the great joys of filmmaking because production you know as you know Rex can be no matter how well it goes it's sort of like hell you know in a way it's like <laughs> you, you have to be sort of a you know in a way a masochist to say I love production because production is just um, is chaos no matter how organized it is it's still compromise and it's still you know it's you're fighting a clock all the time and again that's why preparation is so critical but preparation itself can be a very calm um creative place you know um so uh, i i i hardly yeah. agree with you i mean i really do i i look at uh, pre-planning a film as if uh, christmas or hanukkah is coming you know, it's like I know there's going to be a day, and we're going to get these gifts, and uh, and so now we're preparing or we're planning a party. It is what can I do to make this the most you know incredible thing? And then sometimes you know you're disappointed when you see it, you know, or you're disappointed in production because there's some problems or something. Or sometimes you're thrilled, you know, that something worked better than you could ever imagine. But but I I like the planning stage. I like all of it because it's 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 literally watching something come together. You know, first essentially on paper and, you know, meetings with people and trying to discuss how it's going to happen, um, working with directors or if I'm lucky enough to direct something. It's, it's, it's bringing, it's giving birth to that, um, you know, uh, soon-to-be-made movie. And, uh, you know, it's all of that. Process. So I really like it. There are some tedious moments in it and, and production could be a nightmare and yet it's, it's one of those, for me, you know, the worst day on set Assuming that all the people are cool, uh, the worst Dan said is still, uh, you know, uh, an incredible day because it's about, you know, challenges and problem solving and thinking on your feet and trying to overcome stuff. And and yeah, you can be completely exhausted and and uh, you know, brain dead by the time it's all said and done. But uh, I don't know, masochistic is not uh, an, an unworthy word. <laughs> for, <laughs> you know, it certainly may be apt. Um, yeah. You know, you and I and I got to go see the. I got to. I got to check in Topsy Turvy. I don't. I had to, again one of those wonderful technical snafus at that moment that you were asking me where I suddenly was booted out of my own studio. Oh, I'm and so did, sorry. And, and and assuming that we're we're listening in the chat room, everything went south, and I'm trying. I was trying to get everything back and going. You know, have I seen this or not? And where is everything? And um, so it's amazing. But but then again, you know, I would love a technically perfect show. 
Yeah. And I would love the volume to sound like actual radio as opposed to how it does and, and be able to do things. But but part of the thrill and the fun of having these conversations live like this is also, you know, odd stuff just happens. Yeah, as long as I don't lose you, you know, my guest, I mean, everything is well. Let me take a quick break, Jack, because we're at that point right now sure. and, and sure. upcoming guests and things. And, and remind people to uh, continue to go ahead and invite uh, others to listen in live, tweet live, uh, share what my guest's insights while we're talking. You can go out and tweet them and, and Facebook them. Uh, before, during, and after the show, that helps so much, and I appreciate everybody who does do that. Uh, I love you, I do, and I appreciate you being in the chat room. And some people never make it to the chat room. They listen to the show and they email me, but they they they, they can't listen live. So um, uh, we're lucky when we can be here together and chat as well. So do leave comments. Uh, Gaffer Girls found out where the comment section is at, at the player, and apparently you can't leave comments uh, at Blog Talk until after the show. I can't. I don't know this because I'm doing something else, so I have I have no access to what the listeners and chatters have. I have a you know, different window, so I can't you know I can't be in two places at once. Sadly, so I don't know what uh, what's difficult and what isn't. Uh, but so go ahead and leave comments after the show. They left comments the other day. I was so thrilled that somebody you know mentioned something. So today, if you can find it after the chat, do leave a comment. And, uh, and rate and review the shows if you get these as podcasts because it extends our reach to other filmmakers. Now, my guests and my list comprise the whole gamut of filmmaking from A-list listeners and guests to uh, newbies and fans. And uh, and so, uh, you know, you're in good company when uh, when you're listening to the show, and I'm, I'm so pleased to be able to say that. All right, so quickly, my upcoming guest tomorrow at the same time live is Peter Pastorelli. He's a producer. He's worked on numerous movies, and uh, he's going to be here talking about producing and line producing and unit production management and, and what it takes to get a movie off the ground. He's uh, just uh, uh, been working on one uh, night and day for the last couple of months, and uh, I think they just wrapped, so uh, I'm going to have him on. Peter Marshall's coming back on Thursday. That's the 18th of August, uh, same time. Uh, 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Central, 8 uh, a.m. Pacific. Uh, he's continuing our director series as well. Uh, next week we have uh, Jack coming back on the 23rd. We have Joe and Biagio, their TV uh, reality show producers. They they produced um, Screen Queens, and uh, they got a new show called Dying to Do Letterman. Gary Marshall will come up on the 31st. I'm not going to give you all the dates from now on, but the 31st, Gary Marshall is coming back. He's the founder of... Um, the Breakdown Services and Actors Access. Peter Toland will be coming up. And local filmmaker, he's a L.A. guy now, but he's from Wisconsin, he's made movies here, Drew Rosas and uh, Nick Summers, co-directors on a feature film, are coming up. And uh, Paul Batista is an entertainment attorney. We're going to have him on and so many other people. So please do stay tuned to Rex Sykes Movie Beat, the official uh, web address is R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S dot com. And thanks again for sharing it and uh, and spreading the word. Okay. All right, enough. Back to you. Um, so um, very cool. I see. I could be really, you know, long-winded in announcements, and I and I should cut all that down. But uh, no, no. It's actually you, you talk at you know you talk at Scorsese speed. You talk at like, quite a clip, which is good. It's fast, but you still understand everything. You know, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, we we were at that. Uh, where were we? Uh, let's see. I think we well, I, you know, I think we were sort of talking about a whole bunch of things, but I mean, one I guess one oh, of the we things, were. Yeah, but go ahead. No, no. 
Well, I was just going to say because you were talking about storyboarding and the planning, yeah. when we, and we talked about kind of you know, uh, you and I have talked about it and mentioned that we talked about it on the show, and uh, I want to tie it back into everything you've said so far because the strategic use of a wide shot um, is fantastic. But what what about do you do you take a position as a director that this is a particular character's story, or if it's an ensemble piece, these are these you know different um, yeah. uh, characters, and that the camera tells their story from a particular point of view, that being the point of view, not the POV shot, but the point of view of the character, that somehow yeah. you position your camera to, to you know. Because uh, I think a lot of people want to understand this asset. How do you maximize someone and let, you know, it's their story versus, right. you, know, you know, without everybody being equal? That's a really great question. I think that's really good because a student just asked me that. Like, for example, a, a student is doing a, a multi-character. I mean, when you do a single character mm-hmm. movie where you're, you know, like something like Taxi Driver, you know, which I think is, again, the perfect example where you have like a one guy kind of going through a world, it's, um, that's one thing. But when you're dealing with a, an ensemble piece where you have a lot of characters, and in this case the student's making a horror movie with uh, a zombie movie where a bunch of you know, a bunch of teenagers, you know, get attacked by zombies. And one of the things she was saying was is that, you know, she was saying, I want to, you know, there's this one girl who's in this group of like five or six people who get attacked by zombies who's really the main character, she said. You know, she's the one that survives. She's almost like the Jamie Lee Curtis and Halloween survivor at the end. So, you know, the question was, how do I, you know, how do we, how do we focus attention on her? Or how do we show the audience that she's more important than anybody else? Obviously, if you write a scene and you have like a character getting more lines or more, her opinion is being made more clear through dialogue. You know, no matter how you shoot it, the fact that this person is talking all the time is going to focus the audience attention on on her. But this is the difference between film and theater. You know, and this is a really good example. You know, uh-huh. in theater, if you see ten people on stage and you're sitting in the fifth row and the, and one guy is talking. Your eye goes to that guy because he's talking, but in effect, your shot hasn't changed because your shot is one shot. It's your perspective of the stage from wherever you're sitting. Whereas in film, as a director, you get to take the camera basically up on the stage, if you will, and put it wherever it needs to be to emphasize or underscore that thing, that moment, or that person. So one of the things you can do really simply, and I talked a little bit about this, I think, in an earlier discussion we had, but one of the things you can do really simply is has to do with shot size. If you're is to give the to give the character that is most important the tighter shots at the exclusion of others. In other words, if we did a scene where six people are talking and it's a it's a dinner table scene, and it's or I just say it's you, me and three other people or whatever talking, and it's your story, your POV, Rex, that I want to I focus uh-huh. on, that I would give you, you know, one example is I would give you the close-up, the only close-up, um, even if you're not saying anything, because say if I cut from your close-up to a wider medium shot of everybody else, say everybody else is in a medium shot, but every time we cut to you, it's tighter, even if you're just reacting to what's being said, even if those people are blathering on forever, that the audience is automatically going to identify with you because you force the camera, you force them to see more of you, more of your reaction. It's more intimate. We've 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 kind of forced 
and I use this in, in, a, in, a, in a positive way, but we force the audience to identify with you simply by, by virtue of the fact that we can see you more clearly. We see you tighter than anybody else. So a sh- shot size is a really easy way of focusing the perspective um, on a scene. Um, one of the other things you can do is say you just don't want to do it in cutting with shot size, but you can do it it's like an, even in a single shot. If you did that same dinner table scene, um, what I like to think of is that um, the person who is most important in a scene in a num- with, uh-huh. amongst a number of people is always close, seems to be, cl- works better, it seems to work better if that person is the one who's closest to the camera. So in other words, if it was a wide shot of a whole dinner table, if I positioned the camera so that it was closest to you, so by virtue of the fact of you being closer to camera, you are going to loom bigger than everybody else. But you feel like what the, what, the, what the psychological effect seems to be is that if the camera is sort of the audience's eye and you literally put the camera near somebody, it's almost like you're seated next to him at the dinner table. In other words, it's like, it's like, you're, it's, it's like you're with your girlfriend or your wife or your best friend. You're sitting the camera is sitting next to the person that they want to be closest to. Again, you're forcing it, but you're. But if you block a scene, if you stage a scene with your with your main characters always sort of closer to the camera than everybody else, that's another way of bringing the audience very subtly on the side of that of that person. Um, and then, you know, lastly, here's a third one. I mean, there's a million ways to do it. And oh, yeah. by all, you know, what, I, what I'm saying is that these are just ideas. But but you know, you can come up with your own. Uh, solutions, but um, one of the things I noticed again, I, I, I can't emphasize saying using taxi driver enough as a kind of like, you know, almost like if you watch this taxi driver, you know, you, it's like a compendium of so many filmmaking techniques, editing techniques, performance to everything. It's so it's so overt, but brilliant. I mean, it's it's so it's it, why it's such a good example beyond being a brilliant film is that everything that's done in the movie, it's very clear to see. In other words, you see the camera moves, you see these decisions, you see these performance decisions, you see these music decisions, the editorial decisions are all really clear in most Scorsese movies, but specifically in that one. And it's a good way to learn, because as opposed to like saying, I watched L.A. Confidential again on my birthday, which is you know, a movie I really enjoy. Uh-huh. Oh, I and, love it, and, yeah. and, and it's a, you know, Curtis Hansen does a masterful job of, of directing that movie. But it's a harder movie to learn from because it's oh, it's so subtle. In other words, there's nothing grandiose. There's nothing over the top going on filmically in the movie, even though each one of those choices is as precise as anything a more stylized filmmaker. But that's that's a movie that's easier to get to disappear into the story and not really start to track exactly what's going on. Whereas something like you know, if you watch Kubrick or Hitchcock or Scorsese, you can see ah. I see. This, this. He's using a wide lens here. Ah, I see. He's using a low angle here. He's dollying here. You know, he's jump cutting here. Those are the best films I think to learn from because they're the easiest to identify. You know, in in the technique. But like for example, in Taxi Driver, there's a scene where Travis walks in to the garage where he wants to get a job as a taxi at the beginning of the picture, and he he walks into Joe Spinell, uh, Joe Spinell, the actor who plays the uh, the boss, and some of you horror geeks might know him from the movie Maniac, or uh, I'm trying to think what he's in Rock in the original Rocky. He's sort of like the uh, the loan shark that Rocky knows. Anyway, works for. Anyway, so so uh, 
De Niro walks into the office and Joe Spinell, the boss, starts asking him all these questions. You know, what's your service record? You know, what's your education? You know, will you work on weekends? Blah 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 blah. And actually, the the boss is talking the most again. Travis is a very quiet character; he doesn't say very much. But if you notice, and here's the here's what I'm getting at, is that all the shots on the boss who's interviewing him are are shot over Travis's shoulder or over Travis's body. In other words, every time you see the boss, there's a piece of Travis in the frame, in the foreground, either his hand or his shoulder or his head. You never see Joe Spinell clean, or as we call a clean single. He's always got a piece of the other actor in the fore- of, of Travis in the foreground. Conversely, every time you cut to Travis, he's clean. There's none of the boss. In the in the in the foreground, it's a clean shot of Travis. So that is like a way of just very subtly again, allying the camera with the person who's most important. In other words, the camera never leaves the side or kind of stands behind the character it identifies with. The camera is with Travis, looking at this guy. And so when when you cut to Travis, you're still with him. You're not jumping over behind the boss's chair to shoot him. You're with Travis. That very simple sort of orientation where you're like, I'm with him. I'm not with that guy. I'm over here with him. I'm literally, on the camera, I'm literally over here standing next to this guy is a way of telling the audience that this is the guy you're riding with. And I think that that, is subtle but super effective and really the opposite of what we were talking about in an earlier session, which is coverage, where everybody, where you shoot right. everything, every over the shoulder, and everybody gets a close-up. And, 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 you know, I think that that's, that's where, I mean, if you do shoot that, where you shoot over the shoulders of everybody and close-ups of everybody, you still have the opportunity to harness the point of view or to focus the point of view in editing because you can say, you know what, I, I will, I'll use the, clean sh- the close-ups of this guy only, even though I have close-ups of everybody, because I want it to be through his point of view. Um, but that means that you've wasted, <laughs> you've wasted all your time on set shooting a bunch of close-ups that you didn't need. So this goes back to the planning stage. If you're like, if you know whose point of view, who's most important, before you even step on the set, then you can say, you know what? I don't need to get the over-the-shoulder for this. Or I don't need to get the close-up of this guy. I can spend my time getting this close-up for this guy right you know, I can do more takes. If there's a camera move, I can finesse that camera move. So you're committing, and this is getting this is getting closer to what we'll talk about later or at some other point, but this is getting closer to thinking like an editor while you're directing, where you're like, cool. I know I'm never going to use this shot so because I can see that I'm never going to cut to it, either because my philosophy is that this is the point of view that I'm, I'm setting and I know I'm never going to deviate from this, um, or what have you, but it's still like, I'm going to shoot this and shoot this only. And again, when you have no time and you're running around like a madman, this sort of very bold, and I will say it's bold. I mean, there's, I'm not saying it isn't, you know, a daring thing to, to, to shoot only, you know, what you're going to cut together. Um, but it does make for very um, designed filmmaking, very courageous filmmaking, daring filmmaking, and I think out of that comes great movies. I think if you shoot a movie just to cover and be safe, 
you know, and there's 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 room for that. But if everything is about safe and insurance, and I don't know, I want to have this choice later. I mean, I don't think that's the best way. Imagine imagine a building being built that way, or a car being built that way, or anything. <laughs> right, right. You know, it's like let's try everything, and well, maybe we'll you know, it's like it's the thing that has the bold design, the strong point of view, literally the the filmmaker's point of view, his imprint. That is the thing that really resonates, I think, or works. You know, best is sort of so that's 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 sort of you know a long way around to answering that question, but that, that's again again no not at all a long way um, very very apt and and very useful and one of the things that I think about given the information that you provided for example just placing the close the camera closest to the actor who's you know featured in the scene whose story it might be uh, you used me as the example okay but but what's cool about that now particularly today in our day and age is that since it's consumer model shooting you know you can go out and get a a tiny handheld you know, a uh, photographic camera that does video, and you can shoot this stuff and test it out. In other words, or or you can get a more expensive camera and actually shoot it. But in between making your movies, you can uh, go. Let me try that. I'm, you know, have a dinner table scene. I'm going to put the camera closest to this actor who's featured in it and shoot it. And then go around and and actually do the opposite. Put it at the other side of the room, and 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 there's a guy there thinking, well, I'll just cut the close-ups. You mm-hmm. can you can experiment with the size of the close-ups. You can experiment with the dirty close-up or a clean close-up, and you can you can literally then show your uh, footage. You, you can view it yourself and see what impact it has, but you can show it to, you know, other people and go, what do you get from this? You know, what's the difference in emotional impact? Uh, obviously, you should have something nicely written. I mean, I, you know, sure. I, I think things work better, you know, if there's, you know, a point to what you're doing, but you, you, can, you can experiment with the camera placement, you know the the size of close-ups, the different kinds of lenses, and um, and and how it affects an audience. You know in your story. So you, you what you what you've done is you've given people something that they can immediately implement. Oh yeah, no, I think that, and I think what you said is a great a great tool. I mean, is a great exercise um, always um, is to you know is to go out and take a scene that you've written, and like you said, hopefully it's an interesting scene. But even if it isn't, shoot it a bunch of different ways and see, you know, not only to try these kind of techniques that I'm mentioning, but but to try to find maybe something else, you know. I mean, I, I think this is why this idea of, you know, we, we talked a little bit about it, even though I am, like, getting to be an old man, it's like, you know, the <laughs> idea of a dogma-style dogma, dogma style shooting, which is, you know, which kind of came out of the 90s, well, it really came out of, of, of Italian neorealist films and, and some of the French New Wave, but the handheld sort of uh, deliberate kind of aversion to classic Hollywood polished filmmaking with precision dolly moves and so forth, where you just kind of shoot stuff and you focus in the middle of it. And look, they're great examples. I mean, one of my favorite films from that period is this movie, the Thomas Vintenberg movie, The Celebration, which is uh, you know, which is set over like a long weekend at a Danish you know, country house where a family gets together and this horrible secret gets revealed. And it's all very much shot in that. It is shot exactly in that dogma style. And I think that was a perfect example of where that sort of documentary, I don't want to say sloppy, but rough sort of shooting actually meshed with the idea of like a family gathering and the feeling of almost like home movies of a, of a family event, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, the point is, is that um, it's the if you start with that and you don't start thinking about it in terms of these sort of very precise, 
sort of choices, and you just shoot it kind of like and say, well, this will be just more real. I think that's a mistake. I think saying, well, just grabbing it all doc style and handheld just kind of feels real. Well, it does, and handheld does have a place, and it can it can feel real, and there's a reason why it feels real, and there's a reason why certain things in the Bourne movies work a certain way, why they work. But I'm just what I'm saying is that to start to decide when that particular look or feel where that fits into your paint box, your toolbox. When do you pull that out? What I'm saying is there shouldn't be any absolutes. It shouldn't be like, this is how you do it exclusively. You know, I used to have people who would tell me, I think I mentioned this earlier too, I used to have people tell me, like, I'll never use a Zoom. You know, Zooms are crazy. Zooms are take you out of the movie. Zooms feel like, you know, kung fu movies or whatever. And, you know, I disagree, and I'll use every, any tool that there is in filmmaking that I can afford that will help me get whatever point um, across I'm trying to make. But um, I sort of got off the rails here, but I'm trying to think where we originally were, where, how we were talking about this. The, um, I think it was probably, now I don't know where we were, Rex. This is the problem. <laughs> this is the problem. <laughs> well, I, I talked about we, too we many started... things, I just kind of spin out into space. Um, <laughs> well, but... we started about implementing and and uh and knowing you know what you were going to use and what you weren't going to use right, and... right right oh no the exercise that you were talking about so yeah right. so so shoot shoot a scene you know shoot one scene a, a one page or two page dialogue scene a million different ways try a bunch of different focal lengths try try different heights lens heights try different camera moves you know try it static try you know you know try shooting it all from one try to find one here's a good example uh, here's a good technique: is try to find one angle using one lens uh, that will that will hold. In other words, here this is almost like death, like to people now. Like it would be, oh my God, no! But I, I've never thought of this exercise, but it just came to me now. It's like if we were doing a dinner table scene again, the dreaded <laughs> dinner table scene. Try to find if someone said you can only shoot this from one angle. You've got one shot to do this. That would force you to really think about where does this, where can this camera go, where can this camera go where it actually will, will work, where the scene will play without any cuts, you know. And if you look at like some early Woody Allen stuff, you know, from the 70s and 80s, where he's got a lot of these like New York City apartment dinner table scenes, you'll notice that the camera is like in a doorway looking at like 20 people. And a two-page, three-page dialogue scene will go by, and you'll be like, you know, you'll be completely immersed. You won't be like, I need a close-up of this. I where's that? I can't see this. Blah blah blah. It's because, like John Huston, who was known for always his camera being in the right place. Um, think about it, that's the most practical tool a filmmaker has. Imagine, especially if you have no time, if you can find, you know, these shots that hold, you know, the longest that really work. I mean, think of it as almost like a puzzle, and then there uh-huh. is in a way, you know, it's like there's a there's a there's a key to this scene, and it isn't a million shots. Maybe it's only two, but if I can find those two, imagine how much easier my day would go if I knew I only had to do three setups instead of ten. Um, and that only comes with trying it, you know, fooling around, you know, screwing around with your with your friends and trying a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I used to do this all the time. Some of the most fun I had in film school 
was not when I was making assignments, but like on the weekends when we were just screwing around with a video camera because it was like play. And in play, you're a lot more creative and you you find a lot more stuff without the pressure of, i got to do this, and this has got to be great. So in the time before you make your, your, your important movie is the time where you really discover this stuff and 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 be free with that, you know. Be have really just have be silly with it because you'll find all kinds of cool stuff. Um, it's uh, it's really something I should do myself. Um, it's almost like going to the gym or something. It's like it's you right. work it. And I, I I really am telling myself this now because it's been a long time since I've uh, just sort of screwed around. But even when I do, I, I do discover. All kinds of things. One of the things that I remember I read recently in this uh, Richard Schickel book, um, uh, interviewing Martin Scorsese again, was that he said when he was in film school, he would study what all the techniques were being used conventionally in movies. Um, for example, you know, let's just say, and this is not one of them, but to say like in a Spielberg movie or a J.J. Abrams movie, or in anybody who's watched their movies, where some big dramatic thing happens, there's a a very quick dolly move from a wide shot into a close-up. You know, it'll be like, there comes the train, you know, and the camera will rush in, usually from a low angle, from a wide shot to a close-up. At the moment, somebody points to the UFO or whatever it is. That's a classic sort of flourish, you know, this particular fast dolly move as something intense happens. Uh-huh. And what he would do is he would say, okay, this is what's being done to communicate this moment of, I'll say awe, at a moment of awe or a moment of absolute drama, you know. What he would do is he would do he would identify it, then he would do the exact opposite. I see, He'd say, what if I start close and dolly back fast, dolly out and end on a wide shot instead of what they were doing in a close-up? He would do these things the exact reverse just to see if he could find something or if it would work, mm-hmm. if it would work in the, in the, in the exact opposite direction. I think that's sort of, um, that, that sort of explorer, um, attitude is a really good one to have, uh, in the arts because, uh, who's to say what is, there is no, there are no absolute rules, you know, they're, they're meant to be broken, but learn them first and then break the shit out of them, you know, yourself. And that's where you're going to, that's where you break new ground as an artist, you know? Um, so, anyway, that's... Well, uh, I, I love that because, I mean, people, when they're in film school, they get assignments and sometimes they, they still go out and play and experiment. But, you know, you get out of film school or you work professionally or whatever, and, and, and sometimes you're too busy to play. And if you can find that play time and that experiment time and utilize it, uh, you know, in, in, in the manner that you're discussing and presenting, then, you know, a whole new world can open up to you as a filmmaker. Yes, it, it, absolutely. I, I think that's really because we all get. You know, I was always. I said this before. I was super tense when I was in film school. I was just a tense kid anyway. But I, um, but but you know, tension. You know, ambition and uh, tension can you know be good. I don't know. No, I don't think tension can be good. I think ambition <laughs> is good. I think drive is good. I think the you know, it's hard to get a movie made. So so having you know a will to get something done and and to to prove something to yourself is is a good thing to have but but um but but best, the best creativity comes out of out of a out of a, a loose a loose state you know you know that's why they say like when you know they have 
they have all those accounts of like a baby, like a big, you know, it's horrible, but like a, a baby falling out of a you know a two-story building and landing and, uh-huh. and surviving because the baby is just completely relaxed and loose, right. or or people being you know in a car accident when they were you know, uh, a, a drunk driving accident or something, and somebody will kill somebody, you know, horribly, but the drunk driver is not as injured because he was just completely relaxed. Obviously, I'm not, the last thing I'm saying is drive drunk, but what I'm saying is that the state of mind that you're in uh, when you're making a movie, it behooves you to be less freaked out because the more tense you are, um, the harder it is to create. So, um it's, but it's a it's a war because it matters. It's in in your mind. It matters so much, you know. It matters so much to you to make a good movie. If you're if you're a serious filmmaker, it's going to matter. So you're constantly fighting that, um, those two sides of your brain. I need to be relaxed in order to you know, it's like a batter going to the plate. I need to be relaxed to really hit the ball. If I think about it too much, I'm going to miss. You know, I'm going to it's going to be a strike. Um, and at the same time. You know, you know, you want to do good work. So, you know, it's it's a balance that you find. And you know, there's a reason why you know I'm nauseous every you know the first day of every or many days of a shoot. Then the morning I'm always like nervous and my stomach is grumbling and I feel like I want to throw up because it matters so much. And then finally, when you get going and you finally start working, you know that nausea and stuff starts to go go away. And then it starts all over again the next day. Um, because it's important. It should be important. You know, it's too hard for it not to be important. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. But just don't, 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 don't get an ulcer. I guess is the other thing. Yeah. Well, and and, and we we got to discuss that as well. I su- I suppose. Um, and and I want to ask a question from the chat room in a moment. Uh, I'm a firm believer. Right, with with this this may be a long winded question, but I'm a firm believer of of um, doing what is currently the trend to some extent in in other words you got you, you there's a there's a part of filmmaking where i think people are successful if they can appease an aspect of something that people are familiar with meaning um if you're going to shoot a western it should look like most westerns you know mm-hmm. it shouldn't look like something else you know what i mean and and um, you know, when I think of most westerns, and it's not necessarily the case, you know, you think of the expanse, you think that the, the backgrounds are oftentimes featured, and, you know, people are riding horses, and there's all this stuff, but there's a lot of wide shots, and a lot. Of, mm-hmm. You know, if, if you could make a western where everything takes place inside a bar, you know, the saloon, right. you know, and 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 that would be it could be riveting, but but you know, there are expectations that people come to with uh, movie making. Uh, and studies, psych- psychological studies, suggest that there are a huge portion of people who like things the way they like things, meaning they're attracted to those things that they're familiar with, that people like people who are like them far more than they like dissimilar people. We're attracted to dissimilar people because we find something common in them. So what I'm, say- what I'm getting at filmmaking commercially-wise is that if you're shooting a movie and your movie – and it's, I'm not talking about having different shots and all that kind of stuff, but if you don't use the camera the way people are typically familiar with a, a bulk of the time, they don't necessarily get how to to do it. If, if it looks like it's, you know, when we were talking about making a, a no-budget movie look bigger, mm-hmm. um, the movies that I tend to go see are going to be commercial movies. They're going to be independent features. They're going to be anywhere from, you know, a, a million dollars on up. And so when somebody sends me a movie that's, 
you know, a, a $4,000 movie that they made in their backyard, part of me resists it because I look at it and I go, well, this looks like video and these other things look like film and, and this, this has, you know, um, everything is shot on sticks. There's no movement and, and right. these have dolly shots and cranes. You know what I'm saying? Do you know what? I Am know, I making yeah. My, that, that I think if you can explore what, you, what you're talking about and, and explore these different aspects of camera movement and camera placement and, and and shots and even coming up with new and novel creative shots that Spielberg and other directors do oftentimes, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't in their films, but as you do, what you're doing is you're learning to make something that other people can you know, more readily appreciate, I guess. And I'm not saying don't be novel, and I'm not saying don't be unique, and I'm not saying you don't be creative, but I'm saying all of that should fit within some piece of commercially accepted form if you want your thing to to be more widely accepted. Does, is that, uh, if I made myself clear? Uh, that's the yeah, marketing no, I understand. I understand what you're saying for sure. I think that, um, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a, you can think about it in stages. I think it happens naturally because I think, I don't think, I, I think very few of us start, well, maybe I'm speaking out of turn. I, I didn't start by saying, I just, well, I want to be an innovator and I want to do everything differently. And okay. I don't, I don't think that's, that's necessarily, where I started. I started with, I want to be a professional movie maker. I love movies. Most of the movies I was raised on were not unconventional, um, avant-garde, or even foreign cinema. I didn't see much of that until I went to film school. Um, so they were you know, pred- pr- traditional Hollywood movies. And so you start, whether you're in film school or whether you're at home, and you're starting to make films yourself, I think you automatically start by saying, I want to do what they do. So what you do, what what behooves you is to, to to take those techniques that you recognize from those movies that you like, those professional Hollywood movies, whatever filmmaker it is, you know, and you start to try to execute those those shots. Um, I think that's what what is the normal process where you're saying, look, I really like this particular Dolly movie. I really like what they did here. I'm going to try that in my movie, um, and I think that's the where where to that's a good place to begin is to try to do those things that you like that, that are working in, in, I would say conventional and that's not a bad word because there's only so many techniques in the world. Um, and there's nothing worse than somebody just trying to be different to be different. It's that, that doesn't necessarily, you know, lend itself to a greater movie going experience. Anyway, all, all that can do is like, wow, that guy did something different, but that doesn't mean the story worked any better or the moment the emotional moment was was conveyed any better, um, but so yeah, I, and I do think that that if you do that, then you'll then you can you can expand from there. Um, going back to what you were saying about how people like their genre or their you know their yeah, it's like their genre a certain way. Look, I encountered this uh, to a certain extent. For example, you know, The Big Empty, uh, which was a movie I mentioned earlier, which right. was an early movie of mine was a private eye movie. But it was a, but it wasn't Kiss Me Deadly or The Big Sleep or The Maltese Falcon. You know, uh, it was more by way of like Altman's The Long Goodbye, which was a, which was really already a subversion of the private eye genre that a lot of people hated. Not because they, you know, first and foremost because it was Raymond Chandler and he had cast Elliot Gould. As Philip uh-huh. Marlowe, uh-huh. as opposed to right. Humphrey Bogart, obviously these were people who were like, "This is this guy's not Marlowe," blah blah. But 
what I did with that movie is I sort of took the private eye genre and used it as a way of exploring uh, things that you would ordinarily find in a drama, uh, a regular drama. So I sort of mixed those two things together. And there were some people who appreciated that and, and saw it as a sort of expansion of a genre. And there were some people who were like, I hate this because it isn't what I consider a private eye movie. So that was a choice I made as a, you know, as a filmmaker early on, that this was the movie that I wanted to make. Um, and I wanted to see this movie, and I was willing to take the, you know, maybe it wasn't, maybe if I'd known what some, that some people were going to hate it so much, I would have thought about it more. But still, I made that choice, um, and I love the movie. Um, but you know, I think that what you were saying is, is that you have to be aware that people like their, you know, there's a reason why people go and order, you know, eat their Whopper. You know, they they know what to expect. They go and buy a Whopper because they know exactly what it's going to taste like. Um, if you can give people enough of what they want out of a genre and then take them someplace else, then you're getting, you know, it's like it's like you know, it's like getting something and then there's also a prize on top of that. Um, so it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting. It's, it really depends on how um, commercially aware you are, um, how how much of a consideration is the audience really? That's a question you know that uh, that you have to ask. Because uh, it will affect your choices, you know. Do I really? How much of this movie is for me? How much of this movie is because I hope people like it? Is a question that a lot of people you have to ask yourself constantly, you know. Well, I do think I, I do, and, and there's no right or wrong in this, and I'm not suggesting that there is, you know. And it's all shades of gray. But some people make movies for themselves, you mm-hmm. know. I make my movie for me. That's what I want to get done, and that's what I want to see. And others make movies for other people. You know, they go, it's like, you know, here, I made you this gift. Here, I made this movie, you know, for the audience. And then there's a combination of both. You know, I made it for myself and hopefully other people. You know, and and again, it's all degrees. Or I made it for other people and hopefully I get some of myself in it. So, you know, there's all... but it's definitely food for thought. I mean, it's it's, no, no, but you're absolutely right. I mean, like I was saying before, even with technique, there is no... There is no right or wrong answer. No one can, in, you know, no one can say, okay, you know, like if you ever hear, like if you've ever seen the great documentary Visions of Light, you know, which I mentioned probably earlier, which is, which is uh-huh. worth seeing. Every everybody and anybody potential director, so definitely cinematographer, but certainly director should see Visions of Light, which is all about the history of movies through cinematography. Right. And as I said, since picking shots and knowing lenses and so forth is really critical to being a good director, it's even more important to watch that. But if you hear like Vittorio Storaro, the great Italian, you know, cinematographer, Bertolucci's um, DP, and also you know, obviously shot um, uh, Apocalypse Now. Um, you know, he, t- he has a very you know specific thing where he says green. You know, he goes through this whole thing where color equals this emotion. He'll say green is the color of knowledge. So, you know, when I use green, it means that I'm conveying this feeling of knowledge. Red is the red of childbirth. So when I use red in a shot, um, you can, what I, even though he talks in absolutes, you can say, you know, no, red is the color of, you know, whatever. You know, and red doesn't equal, nothing equals everything, anything absolutely. It's up, that's sort of the really cool thing is that you, it's up to you to define what it is. Um, so, like, you know, for example, they'll teach you in film school that if you want to make somebody feel imposing, you will shoot them from a low angle. You know, if you shoot somebody from a low angle, they'll look big, looming, um, 
towering over you. The other convention is, is conversely, if you want to show somebody who's diminutive or frail, shoot them from a high angle, almost like a parent looking down at a child. Totally works, totally works. But I can also show you a million examples in other movies where they've, they've done the exact opposite, and it still works. So as many, you know, in film school, and in, in some ways film school can be overrated in that there are only so many absolutes they can teach you, and I think it's good because it exposes you to those conventions. But you can also read about those, you know, in, in books about filmmaking uh, and interviews with great filmmakers and by watching a million movies. Um, and you'll start it. You'll start to see, you know, these techniques, and then you just start to, you know, create your own dictionary. You know, it's like it's like you 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 just start to go, okay, this equals this, but no, for this, for me, this equals this. You know, um, I mean, but the first thing is to be an observer and a recognizer of all these techniques. So then you can decide, yeah, I'm going to use this. I'm going to use this. Maybe I'm going to use this here. Maybe I'll use this once and I'll never use it again. Or maybe I'll use it like like we were talking about earlier. Let's go screw around with your friends on the weekend and and do try everything and cut it together a million different ways. And, and then you'll be like, Jesus, wow, this combination of these things is like I've never seen this. I mean, I've seen these things separately but not together. And, um, you know, there are – it's funny. It's It's like the great filmmakers, even when the story isn't so great, are still trying to try everything. Like if you look at a later – like less necessary gangster movie of course of Scorsese's like Casino. Mm-hmm. Um like Casino followed closely after Goodfellas. Goodfellas was obviously like, you know, a high water mark, you know, was a, you know, one of his his you know, his great gangster picture. Uh Casino was sort of like it's eh, sort of a mess. But if you look at Casino, this is the filmmaker working at the height of his powers and even though the movie whether you like it or not, I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad movie, but it's just filled with shit. It's just filled with him trying everything he can think of, of, of a lifetime of filmmaking and a lifetime of watching movies. He is trying everything he can think of in editorially and in terms of how he shoots the movie. Um, and really in, in the storytelling, you know, his use of voiceover and multiple POVs and all these things. He's like trying everything. And I think that's the healthiest thing uh, any of us can do is to try, and particularly, like you said, Rex, when you're not, when you're not committing it to being this is my feature film, try everything and then take what you learn from that and put it into your, you know, into your significant work or whatever your your first critical work. Um, and uh, particularly, like you said, with the DSLRs, um, these cameras, you know, are, are just beautiful. And because you're dealing with prime lenses, um, it's a it's a great it's a great way to learn and make beautiful images at the same time. You know. Um, one of the other things I wanted to mention—I don't know if, if if we have time for it—but you know we were we were kind of yeah we've got about we've got about uh, ten minutes actually if we if we go long and I'm and I'm all for that. Um, yeah, well, just really quickly, you know, again going back to this idea of like how do you make your movie you know look better with no money? Um, you know, part of it has to do with thinking about the frame itself. You know, you, you're dealing with this rectangle. You know, sometimes it's going to be wider if you're deciding to shoot 235 or widescreen. But essentially you're dealing with a rectangle, and it's how you fill it. And here's like a really good example. I wrote a uh, – even though I'm a director – I consider myself a director-writer, not a writer-director. <clears throat> In other words, I feel I'm a better director than I'm a writer. At one point I wrote a script um, a few years ago that was um, – it was uh, based on a, 
uh, a true story and a, and and basically uh, about a, a serial killer, a real a real life serial killer, and uh, his relationship with his best friend who happened to be a cop, and uh, it was sort of this interesting dynamic. I, I saw something there. It was almost like a Pat Garrett, Billy the Kid type thing that I thought would be interesting. Anyway, I wrote this script. I actually thought it would turn out to be a pretty good script, as fate would have it. Um, I didn't get to direct it because the script was sold out from under me, even though I had been promised to direct it. But the people that had bought the script said, we've decided to make this this other way, and we're going to make it even more cheaply, and we're going to give it to this other guy, and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, so anyway, so the movie got made, and um, there was a crime, there's crime scenes in the movie, just like you find in any cop movie, where there's like, you know, cops standing around a body that's been discovered. And if you see the movie, and I thought the director did a did a did a pretty good job, but but he, he made a mistake in in one of these scenes where it's two cops and like a police tape and a body. So say you have a scene where you've got two cops, police tape is the only prop you have, and a body laying on the ground in a park was like the scene. And when they shot this. Talk about this was like this. I think is a good example of when not to use a wide shot. It was a big wide shot uh, where you saw nothing. Basically, you saw the two people, the two cops, the, the police, the police tape tied between two trees, and the and the body, and then a lot of park around them and nobody else. No cop cars, no other cops, no forensics, no photographers, no you know no, no coroner's van, no nothing. It was just empty. Because clearly the budget was so low that all they had were these very few elements. But the choice that was made was let's get a wide shot. You know, maybe maybe the thought was let's get an establishing shot, which is a understandable. But what it did was it revealed the budget of the movie. Uh-huh. It, what it did is it exposed it to be like, oh look, they won't, they don't got anything. You know. So if you think about going back to the idea of the frame, how might I change that shot? given the same minimal elements that I have, to make it feel like there's more activity there than I can actually see. And the, the, the quick answer, the short answer, is just is to fill the, bring the camera in close. Don't go wide, but bring the camera in very close and fill the frame with everything that you've got. In other words, take that police tape, and instead of seeing it from like 20 feet away, put that tape you know, like really close to the lens. Have it like, you know have it slashing across the frame, like in the foreground, big yellow police, you know, and have maybe it's a lower angle or a wide angle where you see your detectives, you know, kind of looming over the body. And then maybe in the foreground is, is you know, the guy's, the, the dead hand of the guy, you know, and, and, and then augment it with sounds of, of the things that you don't see, the walla, you know, of other cops that you don't see. But if you fill the frame, you know, in a dynamic way, you know, take a page from like, like Touch of Evil, where even though they did have a budget, you have these scenes where people are just like crammed in there, and it's very, it has a dynamic to it. That's a way of 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 doing expressive filmmaking, cool filmmaking, but also not showing your ass in a way. And that's one of the things you know you can do. And I did that all the time. You know, it's like with some guy who kills people, just like not having a crane on the days on every day I wanted it. You know, we had a couple of big crime scenes of some guy who kills people and I was able to wrangle just what I needed. You know, one cop car, one van, five guys to be for rent. You know, even though I had more than what this this 
this director had. I still, you know, had to take the minimal elements that I had. I didn't have a hundred extras, and I would design a shot so that I each object, each character, each extra, each vehicle, whatever, had a place in the frame. Again, going back to that strategic placement in the frame, so that when you looked at it, you were like, okay, yeah, I buy this. And not only do I buy it, but it, it's impressive, or, 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 or I feel this is a real scenario. So it, it's about like taking the objects and arranging them. You know, it's almost like arranging furniture in a room. And you know, I guess this is for a later time, but that's really what blocking and staging amounts to a lot of the time is moving people and objects uh, and the camera inside this inside this frame that you're working with which is the which is the movie frame um but yeah i just wanted to sort of get that in because i thought that was i thought that was important to think about that's that is great and when we come back in in a future show i would like to talk uh again more about how you uh make all this happen and maybe go back and touch a little bit about you know your own storyboarding and mm-hmm. uh shooting to cut and more of the no budget i mean this is such valuable information and it's so very cool and so very good and i would like to ask a question from the chat room next time as well uh give you some time to think about it. he said you know how about comedy versus drama or do you like both or you know what are the differences in the the ups and downsides of both and since um uh you know you have comedic elements inside of some guy who kills people and dramatic elements you know what what you might want to address that too in in terms of a you know dark comedy thriller how that how that uh, uh plays out but i want to ask john's question today and and by the way i, I just want you to know that um, and i appreciate this i say this lovingly um john made the comment that uh, you know, we are both awesome, and this is the greatest team up since Batman and Superman. <laughs> wow, quite a compliment! And, and obviously, you're Batman because you're the darker of the two. <laughs> okay, I'll take I'll take that. I think my wife would probably agree with that too. Yeah, I'm the but, brooding I'm the brooding one. Okay. <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, and, and uh, Movie Angel is like, wow, so inspiring, great source. I'm so impressed. Thank you, Jack and Rex. I mean, you know, we're getting lots of great comments, and we do with each show. Oh, how and I nice. That. Thank you. Um, but but John asked. He said, you know, how does movie? And and I hate to do this to the to the question. We have to come back and answer it further. Uh, we've got about uh, maybe four minutes. Um, okay. How does movie making affect life? Is is the question? <laughs> how does it make? Um, how does it make it, well, how does it how does it affect someone's personal life? I mean, in ah, other words, usually. you know, there's a lot of plotting and planning and all that kind of. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I mean we can both answer this. I mean, and, and, and since you're the son of Krypton and I'm the you know the dark, the dark <laughs> not hardly the Dark Knight, but whatever. I mean, it's like, yeah, it it, it does. It well, it certainly does have a huge impact on your personal life, uh, and there's a reason why so many, uh, why why the business is filled with so many fucked up relationships uh, because um, it's just it's an obsession really filmmaking and it 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 requires a lot of time and and just it can take a lot of time away from um relationships and certainly from children not that I have any but that was part of the point you know it was part of the decision making and I didn't have any children um not that I don't love children but I I just my wife and I just thankfully didn't feel like we wanted children but if we had I think that that might have suffered um I, I think that it's possible to do to do everything, but you really have to be um, able to juggle. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I I think it does have a it can have a, a negative effect if you 
um, share your life with somebody um, because you're going to spend a lot of time focused on your work. You know, it's like if you ever saw, not that it's a good movie, but if you ever saw Richard Attenborough's movie uh, Chaplin, you know, which is, Uh you'll see there's a whole scene, I think it's Diane Lane who's like trying to get Charlie's attention while he's spending the, you know, eight zillion hours scoring, you know, one of his movies and he can't get, he's not, he's not getting it right. And she's just finally screams, you know, Charlie, you know, and he finally, huh? You know, he turns around and working, you know, and she says, is this, is this how you lost all your, all your wives? You know, and he said, I think so, or something like that. Like, he's not even able to answer. I can't remember. I don't know. Probably, <laughs> you know, because that's like a really, you know, it's sort of like it, it is it, when you're doing it, it takes all your time. So, uh, and sometimes even when you're not doing it, you're spending all your time trying to get to the place to do it. So my, my whole thing is, is my, my work which I'm still learning, I'm still basically in nursery school, even after all these years, is to figure out how to spend as much quality time with my wife and my friends while still trying to get the next movie going. Uh, because as she puts it, as my wife puts it, when, you, when you're making the movie, you're gone. Like when you're making the movie, you're gone. You're disappeared in every sense of the word, physically, mentally, everything, emotionally, you're gone because you're, you're making your movie. Um, so when you're not making a movie, when you're hustling or trying to get the movie set up, or when you think, you know, it's, it's still got to carve out time for life and, 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 and value the people around you. Um, because at the end of the day, even though Hitchcock was one of the great, made so many great movies, he, he said when his wife Alma was sick and dying, you know, he realized then, like, holy shit, like all this movie making really does not matter as much in the end as the people that you, that you love. So it's again, it's a weird balance, but I guess the answer is yes. It affects it. It can affect it negatively. It's up. It's up to you, the individual, to to try to put it into perspective as you're doing it, because um, it will take its toll if you're not careful. And I simply concur. I simply concur. And I think everything in life, really, frankly, is about learning balance, and and uh, and being able to fulfill whatever function you have as a relational partner, as a parent as a child, you know, as a, a worker or coworker or director, producer, whatever that might be, is learning balance and learning the kind of skills you need in order to make sure that uh, uh, life is good and that uh, life is ecstatic and that you have that kind of life as opposed to, you know, um, um, a, a, a good guy named Reed Martin wrote a fabulous book and, and, uh, and you know, he emphasizes too, don't sacrifice your relationships for your for your films, because in the in the end run, your film will will be on a shelf somewhere on television. But the people that you're around are the people you miss if you sacrifice those. So that's absolutely right. Yeah, no, that's right. That's like your film is not going to be there holding your hand when you die. You know. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's a lesson that you have to constantly relearn. I think because your mind's going as a filmmaker or natural artist, you're going to click into that. You're going to disappear instantly because it does mean the world, your work. Um, so you've got to kind of slap yourself. I, I, I do. I'm telling, I'm telling myself this now. I need to slap myself all the time. Like, wake up, re- realize, you know, or, you know, or live alone. <laughs> yeah, right. If you're, if you know, that's, if that's, that's another that's option. Uh, yeah. But a hard one. Don't be Charles Kane. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so, fantastic. Hey, you know what? 
we <laughs> this is a great question and and yeah. and we can explore that more as well. So many things for us to come back to. Jack, we are out of time. I'll talk to you in a few minutes just uh, uh off air, but uh, um we're going to say goodbye for now and uh hope that I don't have no control over my chat room, so I'm not really sure what's going on. So uh, I want to make sure that we end uh, appropriately. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks so much again, Rex. I, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed this time, and I completely flattered by the superhero, you know, uh, association that we have. So uh, hopefully, and you're, you're Superman next time. <laughs> okay, good. All right, I'll be the man. All right, All right thanks so much. Um, I assume. I, again, I have like no control over the chat room. But anyway, I want to say thank you so much to everybody who listened live and or archived. Do leave comments after you listen to the show live or archived. Do rate or review the show uh, when you get the podcast, and I suggest that you do. And share, please, this information with each and every person you know, anyone who's a filmmaker or a fan. Put it out there on Twitter. Put it out there in Facebook. And do know that Jack is coming back next week, so stay tuned. Tomorrow is Peter Pastorelli. After that is... Uh, 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 Peter Marshall, then Jack is back, and and so you know, uh, be sure to tune in and join us, and uh, and watch for Twitter and watch for Facebook for the announcements. But please do share these links, share these interviews um, with your industry contacts and connections. Uh, go go ahead and put it up. That's how we get the word out. All right, I gotta go, everybody. Uh, have a fabulous day. Follow us on Twitter, Rex Sykes Movie BT. Uh, friend us on Facebook, Rex Sykes Movie uh, Beat Friends on Facebook. Some guy who kills people is a friends page on Facebook, as is Jack Perez. So check us all out. Have a fabulous week, and uh, get your projects made. And until we meet the next time, that is a wrap.